All right. So we are beginning our new series here on marriage and sexuality. I'm talking about dating here and, and we're talking about dating again because most of you guys are single. And I, I'm when I and when I'm talking about singles, when when, the, when scripture talks about singles, where we're talking about those who are not married, meaning you can be dating, you can be engaged, but biblically you are still classified as a single. And, and because because most of you are single, the, the title of the series is pursuing marriage. It's pursuing marriage in a sin-driven world, a world that that is tainted and, and corrupted by sin. And, and the goal of this series is to help you learn, to help you learn how to date wisely. And it begins with having a, a strong foundation, a grounded foundation, an understanding of what marriage is. And if and some of you guys here joining us today, you guys are married or you guys are engaged and about to be married. And I, I pray that you guys would find just as much encouragement in this series as well. Um, because dating and marriage are not separate topics. They are deeply intertwined together. Now, I myself, I, I recently been married. I got married this past summer. And, and so I'm not an expert on marriage. Um, but I, I, I believe that we are all able to talk about marriage because we're all able to talk about marriage, not in a sense of, in a sense of our experience, but in the sense of that scripture has a lot to say about this topic. Scripture helps us understand what God wants for marriages. And so when I talk about dating, we can't talk about dating without talking about marriage because that's what by, well, that's what scripture speaks about. I and mean, when we look through scripture, we actually don't see anything about dating, right? Uh, in fact, we, the, date, the dating culture that we know today is, is actually a pretty modern culture. It's, it's a more recent phenomenon that is built upon the, the cultural priority of the individual. For instance, back in the 1800s, in order for a man to, to meet a woman and get to know her, she, he has to actually call the house and ask for permission to, to know this woman in the woman's house underneath the parents' like watchful eyes. They're like in their living rooms, just, just talking, getting to know each other. And then around the 1920s, and, and 1920s is only about 100 years ago. In the 1920s, the, the dating scene move from this private home setting to the public arena. So the man will now come to the woman's house and pick her up and take her out on a date. And, and slowly, slowly what happened on the course of time, the public arena of dating grew into a form of, of entertainment, of personal fulfillment. And, and the questions that are being asked in the dating realm evolved from asking whether or not is this person fit to be a good husband or wife to, did you have a good time with him or her tonight? And so dating in our culture today, it's, it's, it's pretty much just like a more expensive form of a high school dance. Now there's nothing wrong with the dating culture in and of itself. Like, you know, dating is not wrong. As Christians, what we must do is that we must learn how to navigate them through the murky waters of dating towards marriage. And, and, and dating these days is tough, right? It, it's sometimes dating feels like being at a buffet line and, and you're looking at all this food and, and you want to try everything, but you know you can't because you just can't eat all of it. And so you have to kind of pick exactly what you want and you got to commit to it. When it comes to dating, we, we kind of share that same fear of picking the wrong thing and being disappointed with our choices. And so what, what I want to emphasize in this series is that dating is more than about picking the right choice. And I don't, don't, don't get me wrong about this. We, we do need to make sure we, we find good biblical qualities, character in our future spouse. But marriage is not about you. It's about God. And so I want us to focus our attention on the purpose of marriage. Now, I've been spending some time 
uh, I've been spending time this week just, just kind of thinking over marriage and why God made this so important. And so I drew up a diagram. And so I hope it's helpful, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So I drew up this diagram to kind of talk about marriage and how scripture teaches marriage. We, what we see here is that God ordains marriage and marriage represents God. That's, that's kind of the core feature of marriage. But, but as God ordains marriage, God has ordained marriage to be covenantal, to be between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And he ordained sex, the sex to be only held within the context of marriage. And as a result of these characteristics of marriage, we, we, it builds out the fundamental building blocks of human society. It builds out first a commitment to marriage, a commitment to one another, a, a place where you can, be, you can find trust and safety and security. The marriage the, between a man and woman also helps establish gender identity and gender roles, to, to know what it means to be a man and woman of God. And then in marriage, underneath, uh, underneath sex, sex has another purpose other than physical intimacy, and that's to procreate, to, to start a family. And these things start becoming a building block, a fundamental building block for human society, for human culture. And the problem that we face in society today is, is the un ongoing unraveling of marriage. And, and what we see in our culture today is we see stuff from like divorce to cohabitation to sexual and gender confusion. And, and all these things stem from a corruption and from a corruption of marriage itself. And so when the marriage falls apart, the family falls apart. And, we'll, and what we then get is we get broken homes, we get orphans, we get single parent homes, families who are, who are struggling. What we need in, in, in this society is a reprioritization of what it means to have a biblical marriage under the eyes of God. Because without this, society itself breaks down. And so as a church, we have to come to a biblical understanding of why marriage, why family, why sexuality is so important in the eyes of God. It's, it's about having this focus in mind that helps you date well, that helps you have the right motives and purpose in your dating life. And so and throughout this series, we're going to be covering a lot of these different topics, uh, especially some of the hot topic top, uh, the, the hot button topics that's going on in society today. For instance, here, well, here's a schedule of the series laid out. Um, today, tonight, the first message, we're going to be talking about the biblical concept of marriage. Uh, next time, we'll be talking about family and Pastor Hallie will be coming in to teach that because, well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be on a honeymoon with my wife. A belated honeymoon since we couldn't go during the summer. And then uh, starting in January, we'll be covering the dangers of homosexuality and transgenderism. Uh, and so we see here the first four measures kind of building the theology of why marriage, God biblically defined marriage is so important. Then, then starting from starting after that, the second half of the series will be more practical. And we'll be diving into what does it mean to date well? What does it mean to be single? And what does it mean to have to, to reconcile and forgive one another in your dating life and, and, and even in your breakups? And finally, to end the message, I'll be going through a message about what, what marriage all points to, what our life all points to, which is a heavenly marriage that we will witness, all witness in, with Christ in the final days. And so this is a brief overlook of what our series is going to look like. And, and, and so tonight, what I want to do is I want to focus in upon the concept, the biblical concept of marriage. And we'll be looking at one term. We'll be looking at this, at the one flesh, one flesh aspect of marriage. And what I want to do is I want to trace this concept biblically. Uh, the, the one flesh appears first in Genesis and then, and then it will and then we'll jump through 
from Genesis all the way to New Testament. We'll take a look to see how the New Testament talks about this one flesh union between a man and a woman. And so we are going to be flipping through scripture quite a bit. So I have your Bibles ready, have your pens ready. Uh, make sure you are able to write down uh, all these different references that we were looking at. Because um, we're going to take a deep, we're going to take a look over scripture. But because of time, I'm not going to get deep into every passage. And so I'm going to just talk about these passages in brief, briefly. Um, and what will happen is that in future sermons in this series, we'll most likely get deeper into some of these passages. This sermon tonight will be more like a seminar, but I'll, I'll try to also include applications. So it sounds like a sermon, so we can, we can call this a seminar, right? So here's point number one that we're going to forget today. Point number one is that one flesh fulfills God's purpose. One flesh fulfills God's purpose. Why don't you take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the entire Bible. Um, what we get here is the creation account. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, just to give you an overview, is uh, Genesis chapter 1 is a high-level overview of creation. And chapter 2 then kind of goes into details about how God created all things. So chapter one gives you an overview of all seven days. Chapter two dives in deeper, and specifically on the sixth day when God created man and woman. But let's take a look at Genesis chapter one, verse 27. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Out of all of creation, it is man, humanity. When we're talking about man here, humanity, that truly reflects who God is. And so humanity, both male and female, created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, around the time that Genesis was written, the, the Hebrew word for image was used to speak about statues that, that kings would put up uh, to, to kind of define the boundaries of their kingdom. And so whenever a traveler would pass by and they see the statue of this king, they know they're entering into this king's dominion. In a similar fashion, when it says here, man is created in God's own image, it's saying that all of us are created with the image of God so that creation will know that this world belongs to God. Now look with me at verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This, verse 28, is, is what many theologians call the cultural mandate. It is how man is supposed to establish on earth a God-centered culture. This is our created purpose. We are God's image bearers. We have the sole responsibility to fulfill this mandate here. And so what God is saying here, he's saying, flood the world with my image, with my glory. Exercise dominion over all things so that all creation will know that God is king. And so we are God's representatives. We are his ambassadors. And note at verse 28, the beginning of verse 28, it says, God blessed them. God blessed humanity. God blessed male and female. God blessed them, meaning that there is an everlasting, joyous satisfaction found in being the image of God. When we are, when we are fulfilling this command here, we are, we are worshiping God and we, be, and we enjoy him. We enjoy God and we are fully satisfied in him alone. And this is what the Westminster Catechism says, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him 
forever. And this is then why seeking out, seeking out personal pleasure apart from God constantly falls short, doesn't it? Right? When, when we constantly seek to fulfill our personal needs selfishly, and, and when, we, when we begin to look at dating and marriage with, with, as things that we need to complete our lives, we, we find that all these things that we search for, they don't satisfy us. They don't truly satisfy us. They may, it might be temporarily satisfying, but it's not lasting. Worldly pleasures, including marriage, tend to be fleeting and temporary. They make us feel good for a moment, but that, that emotion vanishes in an instant. True permanent satisfaction can only be found in God. And so what we see here in Genesis is that we are blessed not because of what we receive for ourselves, but, but we, we are blessed by the way we give. By the way we give to God his glory and worship. By the way we give to creation, the, the God's dominion, kingdom, and authority. By the way we give to one another. By serving one another. By sacrificing to one another, committing to one another. And marriage then, marriage highlights how two unique individuals can sacrifice and commit to one another for life. Now turn with me to chapter two. Genesis chapter two, looking at verse 18. Here is a detailed account of how God created woman. And this here becomes than the first marriage that we'll see in humanity. So God here created Adam. He created Adam, the first man, placed him in the Garden of Eden. And here in verse 18, he says here, he says, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Note here that it's God that says it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. I mean, we just saw in Genesis that everything God did, he called it good. He called it all good. But here we see the first instance where God says something is not good. God says it is not good. No doubt it's not Adam who says that, right? Adam here never asked for a wife. He never complained about being lonely. I mean, this was before sin entered the world. So, so and Adam, Adam was most likely content with where he was, but God recognized that something was not complete. He said it's not good. Because Adam alone cannot fully represent what it means to be the image of God. You see, God is a relational being. Right, and so God said back back in Genesis chapter one, He said, "Let us create man in our image." Right, so there's a, in other words, when God says, "Let us in our image," what we see here is that God is a plurality. God is a Trinity. He's three in one: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three are God, and all three are are unified as one God. And so. In the Godhead, we see here an essence of fellowship and relation. And so Adam alone is not a perfect representation of God. Again, Adam did not struggle with loneliness, but God recognized that Adam needed a helper. One who is like Adam, but not identical to Adam. One who can relate to Adam in such a way that represents the unity expressed in the Trinity. And that's what we see here. We look now at verse 19. And it says here, Now out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see that, that what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to, the, and to every beast in the field. Before Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
And what we get here is that Adam went through each animal, naming them all, and yet none was suitable to be Adam's helper. And so God steps in, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. What we get here is that God created Eve straight from Adam's rib. God here performed the first anesthesia. He performed the first surgery ever done in human history. And voila, woman was formed. And God then presents Eve to Adam as a father would walk down the bride, down the aisle to her groom. And as Adam sees Eve, he says in verse 23, then the man said, this, alas, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This here is a beautiful picture of the first union between a man and a woman. And then we reach 20, verse 24, which is where we want to focus our attention upon. Verse 24 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage. Marriage here is about one man and one woman becoming united relationally as one flesh. We get here to the, the template of what marriage is. And, and, what we, and what we see here is, is a math problem that no one can figure out. He's saying one plus one somehow equals one. There are four characteristics that I want to draw out from this text. Four characteristics that, that will kind of guide the rest of this sermon. And the first characteristic is this. We see here that this one flesh union, this one flesh union is a covenant between one man and one woman. Right, we know here in verse 24 that it says that the man would leave his parents. And then the word here says he will hold fast to his wife. The, the word here, the, the hold fast is, is talking about a covenant. It's a covenant language. It's about a lifelong commitment being made between one man and one woman to be faithful to one another until death. And this union here, this union here is perfect. As we see here in, in verse 25, that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? This, remember, this is before the fall. So it's just, it's just amazing to kind of think about what, what does it mean to be not ashamed for them to be naked and not ashamed? I mean, just imagine having someone, a relationship with someone so sure, so safe. You just trust that person utterly with your life in such a way that you have absolutely no shame in sharing everything with that other person. This, this, is, this is the type of relation that God shares amongst himself in the Trinity. And it's the kind of relation that we were supposed to have with one another. John Piper, in his book, The Momentary Marriage, he, he talks about this, this verse and he, he gives two reasons why a married couple will be free from shame in their relationship. The first, we can assume that Adam and Eve here before the fall, because they were, that sin has not corrupted them at all yet, they were perfect and sinless. Therefore, they had no shame to share whatsoever. But there's a second reason why, why in a covenantal marriage, a man and his wife may not feel ashamed of one another. 
And, and that's something, and I, I think the second reason is important for us to understand today because we don't live in Adam and Eve's time here, right? We, we live in a sinful world. We live in a corrupted world, in a fallen world. And, and, and so the second reason that Piper lists, he says this, he says, he, he talks about a married couple can be free from shame, not because they are imperfect or not because they are uh, not because they are perfect, but because they have no fear of being disapproved by the other. In other words, the one flesh union leads, the one flesh union is, is covered, it's, 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 its essence is covenant love and grace towards one another. He, Piper says this, I quote from the book, there is no shame because covenant love covers a multitude of flaws. In other words, you have this trust in this other person that they love you so much that no matter what flaws or sins you may have, they are willing to still commit to you. And we'll see that and forgive you because of this covenantal love, this commitment to one another. Second characteristic that we see here in the one flesh union is that it's, comp it's complementary. It's complementary. Let's, let's again see here that it is one man and one woman both created in the image of God and, they are, and therefore they are both equal in status and significance and yet they are different in responsibilities. We, we, we just read in, in Genesis chapter 2 that man was created first. He, he was given the first law. He was told by God directly, do not eat from the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one tree you're not allowed to eat from. He gave, God gave man that command. And therefore, a man's responsibility, being created for is being given the law. His responsibility is to lead, to teach, and to protect. On the other hand, Eve... Eve here was not created from the dust, but he was created from man's rib. She is equal to man, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But yet God gave her a different role to be a suitable helper fit for man. The woman here is a perfect complement to the man. And what we see here is, is two people coming together in unison of equal status by having different responsibilities, different roles. One flesh, a one flesh union does not, it, it does not work. It does not work with two identical persons. It's like, it's like a puzzle, right? When you work with a puzzle, you can't have two identical puzzle pieces. You, what you need is two pieces made from the same image, but each cut uniquely so that they fit perfectly with one another. A husband and wife has complementary roles that unifies the two together. They're both of equal importance, but different responsibility. And so we had to keep in mind here of this. We had to keep in mind here that man by himself, males by himself, husbands by himself, cannot fulfill the cultural mandate by God alone without the woman. But that same true vice versa. A woman cannot fulfill the cultural mandate alone without man. God created both male and female in his image. And so what we see here is a joint stewardship, share between the man and the woman, uh, both stewarding their respective gifts, both stewarding their responsibilities in order to exercise dominion over the earth and to bring glory to God. The third characteristic of a one flesh union is that there is this physical expression in this one flesh union. It's why it's called one flesh. Right? It's, it's, it's not just a spiritual union, but it's a physical union. And the implication here is that there is this physical intimacy between a man and a woman. And we know that this physical intimacy is, is portrayed through the private act of sex. And what we also have to understand about sex is that it's not just an act of physical intimacy, but it's also how God ordains man and woman to procreate and populate the earth 
with his image bearers. This, this is this is how man is supposed to fulfill the, the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. It's done through sex and procreation. And this becomes a physical expression of this one flesh union. And when you think about child, right? A child, child has character, has attributes from both the mother and the father. It's a physical display of, of their love and their union together. And what we get here is that sex, the gift of sex from God, is about giving and not receiving. If you, if you read through Song of Solomon, I know we, we don't tend to read through that book. I don't usually do my devotions in that book, but, but read it. If, if you read through Song of Solomon, then the entire book is about what a godly romance looks like. And what we find in that book is that the joy of romantic love is not about what one receives, but about how one gives to the other. And then... The last characteristic here is, is to be God-centered. All the, the previous three characteristics are wrapped up in this last one. A one flesh union begins and ends with God. It is God-centered. Marriage begins with God. I, we see all here that God is the one who created man and woman in his image. It is God who said it is not good for man to be alone. It is God who created man a perfect helper is God who presents Eve to Adam and gives her away to him. But marriage also ends with God. And together, the man and woman are to be fruitful and multiply the image of God across the world. This union becomes a foundational unit for building a God-centered culture. And this is how humanity is supposed to fulfill its creative purpose. And this is how God is supposed to receive his glory. Marriage. Marriage then without God. Marriage without God loses its sense of ultimate purpose and satisfaction. When we think about our lives, right? When we, when we think about each one of you individuals, we, we all want to experience a deep relationship with one another, or at least with, at least with one person, right? We all long for, for a marriage that is safe, that, is, that one where we can trust that person so much to be a, a place that's so secure that we can experience no shame with one another. I mean, we, we all long for a relationship like that, don't we? Why do we feel that? Why do we feel that desire, that longing? It's because we are created in the image of God. God is a relational being and we are supposed to represent him as such. We represent God as a relational being in our marriages and also in our relationship with one another. And so let me ask you, what are you looking for in marriage? What are you looking for when you date? What desires and felt needs do you believe needs to be fulfilled when you're married. I mean, ask yourself this, what do you expect marriage to be like? I want us now to take a look at how this beautiful picture of marriage that God has created in Genesis chapter two becomes corrupted because of sin. And so we see here now how the one flesh union is corrupted by the fall. If we look now at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm not going to walk through this whole narrative here, but, but what we see here is the introduction of sin. And what sin does is that sin disrupts relationships. It breaks our relationship with God. It, it, it disrupts our relationship with one another. Sin makes us have a difficult time to relate to one another. Why? It's because sin is messy, right? And sin is messy because sin, sin is just this complicated being that constantly corrupts what is good. Well, we have to make note here. When sin entered the world, sin did not create a new world order. Only God is a true creator. Right? And everything that God's created, everything that this world that we live in right now is still there. 
as core, everything that is in this world, including you, are created to glorify God. But what sin does is that sin confuses our purpose. It doesn't create anything new, but it corrupts what it really is. And so then this world becomes messy. It becomes complicated because it's, it's all being used for the wrong purpose. So the fall here then, the fall has corrupted each characteristic of this one flesh union. And what we're going to look at is we're going to look specifically at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at Malachi as well. But first, Genesis chapter 3, we first see here that sin has corrupted its God-centeredness of marriage. Right, when we, we know here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, we have here the story of how Satan as a serpent deceived Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and what happens here, what happens here is that God is removed from the picture. Right, Satan tempts Eve to eat from the tree. And Satan tells, what Satan tells Eve is that Eve, you should eat this because you will be like God. But here's the problem. Eve is already like God. She's created the image of God. And so what Satan is doing here is that Satan is playing mind tricks. Satan is deceiving you to think that God does not have humanity's best interest in mind. That God God is holding back humanity, right? God is holding back mankind from fulfilling their full potential. And so sin deceives us, deceives us to thinking that God is not for us. And so sin breaks our relationship with God. But, but note what the result is here in Genesis chapter 3. It's shame. The result is shame. The result is that Adam and Eve had to hide from God because of their shame. And, and I mean, you can, you can literally say they, they were caught with their pants down. When God is removed from the picture, purpose is removed. And the one flesh union loses its fundamental value. And that's what we see in this world today, right? The secularization of the Western culture has removed God from the picture. And as a result, the biblical picture of marriage is being defunct. In many ways, we can trace this back to the teaching of evolution, the study of man. Right? When, when we believe that man is just like any other animals crawling on this earth, we lose a sense of the image of God. We lose a sense of God himself. And as a result, we lose the primary purpose of marriage, to glorify God. Next, we see that one flesh marriage just corrupts also the physical expression of marriage. Look now at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And here we have the curse of sin. And to the women, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you should bring forth children well what, what happens here what happens here is that we see that there will be pain in childbearing and 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 and, and we can kind of stretch this illustration i believe this illustration is talking about pregnancy specifically but we can even stretch this saying that there's pain in, in, in raising up children who are born as sinners right and, and so childbearing Right, the, the being fruitful and multiplying, filling these earth, this has now become painful. And it's become so painful that in, in our days, today, right now, childbearing is no longer prioritized in marriage. Right? Instead of seeing childbearing as an essential moral good in this world, the culture today celebrates the individual choice of the woman instead over the child in the womb. Al Moeller in his book called We Cannot Be Silent. Um, Alan Moore's book, We Cannot Be Silent, in that book, he points out that, that the current, um, what he calls a sexual revolution that we see today, how all the gender identities, the same-sex marriages, and all that stuff that's happening in our culture today, it, he points out how it, it all kind of begins with actually the birth control pill. That was a turning point when the sexual revolution actually gained 
really strong momentum. And, and, and what happened with the birth control pill is that now we can separate sex from childbearing. And, and, and it undermines then a very important feature of marriage itself. It removes one of the main purposes of why God has ordained sex into the marriage. And that purpose was to be fruitful and multiply. And so when sex becomes less about procreating, we start beginning separating that. Then we can start seeing sex more as a means to fulfill selfish desires for oneself. Now, again, let me just emphasize, I'm just talk, we're just talking about how where culture has taken, taken all this to be. And because this culture that we live in is a sinful culture, right? Uh, birth control pills aren't itself wrong. Um, if, if they're, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of arguments that we can talk about. There's a lot of gray areas there. But in and of itself, it's not necessarily wrong. But, but when, when we start begin separating the two, when we start separating childbearing from sex, we can see how a sinful culture will now take sex, which is indeed a good thing, but start corrupting and twisting it to be a sinful thing, one that fulfills selfish desires and not the glory of God. Third thing that sin corrupts is the complementary roles of a man and a woman. And we, if you think about how the progression works here, we, we start removing children from the picture. Now all of a sudden your, your definitions of gender roles starts to get a little bit more blurred. For instance, the gender roles that describe in Bible constantly points out, establishes that the father, the male is supposed to be the head of the household. And so scripture teaches us that the father is supposed to represent what it means to submit to authority and ultimately what it means to submit to God. And in turn, the father is supposed to lead with this sacrificial love and care and protection over the family, the same way God cares for his own children. And these concepts have now been corrupted by the fall. Again, let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. In the second half of it, it says here, again, the God speaking to the woman, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What this verse points out is the dysfunction between the one flesh union now, between the man and the woman. The word here for desire, right? It says, your desire shall be for your husband. The word here for desire is speaking of a desire to master and control the other. And, and, and how I got that definition is it's actually, it's actually found in other places where this same Hebrew word is used. It's only used three times in scripture. And, and, and I don't have the time in this sermon to kind of explain all of it. So if you guys are interested, the other two times this word desire is used is found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. Again, that's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Verse 10, where this word desire is being used again. And you guys can look it up for yourself and, and study it. But all I want to say about this, about this verse here is that the, the, the union between the male and the female, this unique union between two individuals working together to bring glory to God, this union is now corrupted and distorted. And it's been turned upside down. Gender, when gender roles lose its place, marriage becomes a fight between two people who want things their way. And so we see here that a husband no longer sacrifices for his wife, but instead abuses his power. And the wife no longer submits to her husband, but instead desires to manipulate him to do her bidding. And the marriage foundation begins to break apart because both sides realize they cannot get what they want, which leads to the fourth corruption of covenant faithfulness. In this, let's turn to Malachi. Turn to Malachi chapter two, verse 14. In Malachi chapter two, verse 14, we've now reached the end of the Old Testament. And so we 
So there's a span of about 4,000 years of when sin is running rampage over humanity. In Israel, God's chosen people were also falling to sin. And here, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenants. And what we see here is that Malachi, or God here, is condemning Israel for being faithless in their marriages, for constantly getting divorces and remarrying and doing that over and over again. God here is, is expressing his displeasure with Israel. God hates marital unfaithfulness. He hates divorce. And, and we see this common in our society today as well, right? Divorce, divorce has done so much pain and hurt to us. It leads to broken hearts. It leads to children being stuck in the middle between two parents, maybe more. And it leads to a morality that does not answer to God. And what happens here is that you begin to lose faith in the family. You begin to lose faith in the family, you begin to lose faith in your parents, you begin to lose faith in people. And without that kind of trust, society breaks apart. It all begins with marriage. This is a core union that's supposed to set example for the rest of humanity to follow. It's an example for how we are supposed to live with one another. That's what marriage is supposed to do. But sin has corrupted that. Sin has corrupted that. And, and because of that, the sacredness and the unity of marriage has now been destroyed. And when the marriage falls apart, the family falls apart. And when the family falls apart, the foundational building block of society becomes broken. And instead of subduing this world under God's dominion, humanity falls short of fulfilling its purpose. I'm, I'm, I'm explaining all this because I want to show you guys just how important marriage is to you. To, to understand what it means to be married in the biblical way. And, and as, a, as a single Christian, right, for most of you guys who are single, you, you have to pursue marriage for more reasons than just your personal fulfillment. You have to pursue marriage for the glory of God. And this begins with your life now. How do you live for God today? How do you live for his glory? Ask yourself, is your life today God-oriented or self-oriented? Because that will speak volumes for what your future marriage will look like, what your dating life will look like. But at the end of the Old Testament, there we see the devastation of sin. But in the New Testament, we come to see hope. And thankfully, what we see is that God is not a passive God. He works to restore humanity to its original glory. And what we have here now is the third point. One flesh being restored in Christ. One flesh being restored in Christ. And, and God here, God here sends his son into the world to redeem us from our sins. And through it all, God's goal remains the same. But he wants his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with his image bearers. But now in the New Testament, in our age, in our time right now, that circumstances have changed a little bit. What the church has now is the Great Commission. Right? To, to be fruitful and multiply is no longer an act of marriage and procreation only. Now, this command to be fruitful and multiply in the church age for us 
is to be fulfilled through the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's about discipleship. It's about making disciples. And what this means is that you don't have to be married to fulfill God's purpose for you. You can be single, you can be a children, you can be widows, or you could be married and have a family. It doesn't matter. All this together as one church working together to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, that is now our mandate. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not remove the importance or significance of marriage. Instead, what it does is that it points marriage to a new purpose, a greater purpose. It's to portray Christ and his love for the church. And so we, we see here is we will see how a one flesh marriage is now restored in Christ. And we begin with a covenant of faithfulness. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. Here Jesus is answering the Pharisees, and he tells them this about, well, the Pharisees are asking him about divorce. And so Jesus answered him this way. He says in, in verse 5, actually, let's start with verse 4. Chapter 19, verse 4. Uh, chapter 19, verse 4, he says, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, what we get here is that God seeks to protect marriages. Marriages continue to be important to God, not in the sense that everyone should be married, but in the sense that if you are indeed married, you are making a lifelong commitment to another person. What we see here is a covenant being made between a man and a woman, a covenant, a covenant that reap that 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 defines what a biblical marriage is. And this remains foundational. Jesus here is teaching us that this continues to be the truth of marriage. Marriage is supposed to have a covenantal faithfulness and he reaffirms that in this teaching here. And what Jesus does here is he restores this purpose by dying on the cross for our sins. And through the washing of our sins and the renewal of our hearts, us Christians are able to be faithfully committed to our marriages. Next, we see that Jesus restores the complementary aspect of marriage. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we, we get... We, we have this famous passage, and starting in verse 22, that we hear at Christian weddings all the time, right? We, we talk about the, the roles of a wife and the role of a husband. And, and Jesus here, or sorry, Paul here in Ephesians, he, he's, he's telling us, teaching us that the wife and the husband hold different marital roles. And the, the idea here is that it, the, that it restores, there's a restoration of male and female being created image of God and yet different. Both genders, both genders are fundamental to a human relationship, but yet both genders hold different roles. And we see that we see that first and foremost in marriage. But when we when we get here to Ephesians chapter five, there's actually a bigger picture going on here. Right? If you study the book of Ephesians and I'm talk about this broadly and I don't get to any specific text. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul teaches us that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between all of us, between us and God and between us and one another. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has made two one person. And so what we see here is that there's this union within the church, a union of us all becoming one in Christ. And then starting in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, 
Paul here practically teaches us the practice of unity, what it means to be unified together and how that is portrayed in our lives. And he talks about, talks about us being one body of one spirit of under one Lord. And so when we get then to chapter five and we look at the roles of a wife and a husband, it's underneath this context of unity in the church. The complementary roles of a wife and a husband expressed here by Paul is meant to illustrate the unity that we have as a church in Christ. We'll come back to Ephesians chapter five, but the next aspect I want to talk about is the physical expression of marriage, which is again talking about sex. If you turn with me to first Corinthians, in first Corinthians chapter six, verse 16, Paul again quotes Genesis chapter two, verse 24. And he says this in verse 16, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And, and so Paul here is telling us, telling us that this aspect of, of sex is a physical expression of a union with another person. But Paul here raises the stakes. Look at verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. He says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit within, with him. And so... In verse 17, it says, he who is joined to the Lord. The word joined is, a, is, a, is, is the same word in the Hebrew for hold fast. Right? A man should leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. Here, all of us who are in Christ hold fast to the Lord, to Christ. We become one with Jesus. And so what happens here is that Paul is saying that when you fall to sexual immorality, that's the same thing as defiling the body of Christ. And, and the key idea here is that the, your body, your body is no longer your own. Your body is no longer your own. That's the key teaching here. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to Christ. And therefore, you must treat it as such. And finally, back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, 32. Paul here explained the purpose of marriage. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says in verse 32, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we get here is that our marriages to represent Christ and his love. Christ and his union with the church. And again, this fulfills the original intent of marriage. Because the original intent of marriage is to be fruitful, multiply, and what subdue the earth. To exercise dominion over creation. And what we know about what Christ is doing right now as he's sitting at the throne of heaven. Is that he's putting all things under his feet. And Christ is the head church is his body and therefore when christ is putting all things under his feet because we are his body we too are now exercising dominion over creation through christ he is fulfilling the cultural mandate that was originally given to man and marriage then marriage becomes an expression of that union when a man and woman joins together in holy matrimony under the covenant made before God, they are portraying Christ in the church. What we get here is that marriage is missional. Marriage teaches people the gospel. Marriage displays what it means to live a life of grace and love, one that forgives sins, one that absolves any differences, and one that redeems the soul. What we get out of all this, what we get out of all this is that to pursue biblical marriage begins with your relationship with Christ. Because in Christ, we are able to experience everything that we long for in a marriage. 
right? Because in Christ, we have a covenant with him. And we learn that Christ is forever faithful to you, to us. When you are in Christ, you have a union with Christ. But we also recognize this union is not between two equals. It's between God and man. You are not equal to Christ, and yet you are united with him. When you are unified, when you're in Christ, when you submit your life to Christ, you recognize that your body is no longer your own. Christ owns your body. And therefore, what you do for your body matters for God. And finally, Jesus restores marriages because Jesus is our glory. He is our treasure. He points us back to God because Jesus is God. He reestablishes the worship in our, in our marriages. And what we experience in Christ is indeed everything we long for in our marriages. It doesn't matter if you are married or if you're not, we get to experience true satisfaction and joy in Christ alone. It begins with Christ begins with relationship with Christ because it's in our relationship with Christ that we can learn what all this means and thus live it out in our lives with one another. And so the big idea for tonight is this. Pursuing a biblical marriage begins with submitting your life to Jesus Christ who restores marriage to its original purpose of representing God. Let me quickly end. I know we are a little bit short on time right now. But let me quickly end with four quick applications from, from this message. And I'll just show them all. Four applications. First, deepen your worship. Recognize that marriage is not an end to itself. It is for the glory of God. What is your walk with God now today? Are you saved? Do you have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you growing holiness? Are you pursuing God now? Secondly, pursue purity. Recognize that sexual purity is not just a physical act, but it's a spiritual one. It's about having our bodies being under the control of the Holy Spirit. Purity does not begin with marriage. It begins with your oneness in Christ today. There are steward your responsibilities now. Right, marital roles as a husband or as a wife in the future, their roles, their duties to Christ, their stewardships that we must responsibly fulfill. But are you right now fulfilling your responsibility as a single person? Are you exercising your gifts for the church and bringing glory to God? Are you spending your time, your talents now for the glory of God? Examine your life. See where you're See where you're putting your skills, your degrees, your, your opportunities. Think about your own personality or your finances. All of it, these are all gifts of God that we're meant to steward for his kingdom. Lastly, practice commitments. Commitment now because that the foundation of marital love is not romance. But it's about faithfulness to one another. It's about faithfulness despite how you might feel about the other person. Things can change instantly, but will you be committed to your future spouse forever? Or not forever, I guess for until, until death. And what that means is that you must start practicing what it means to be committed now. Faithfulness is faithfulness to one another is a Christian duty. It's not just a marital one. And what that means is that are you striving to be present today, to be on time, to fulfill your responsibilities and promises, to be honest, committed, to be available for your friends and family, even when times get tough? Are you, are you faithfully being committed to all the things you're responsible for now, today? And so all this ties back into marriage. All this brings glory to God. But let us remember that your start in pursuing a biblical marriage for God's glory does not begin on your wedding day. It begins today. What is your relationship now like with God? Let us pursue that first. Now help us then bring the biblical purpose 
and go back into our marriages. Let us remember to pursue our marriages, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God, for this is what we're called to do. This is what we are made to do. With that, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time that we're able to gather together and, and look at your word. And I know we covered a lot today, so I pray, God, that your spirit will help us understand your word. That your spirit will help us wrestle through some of these difficult truths and challenge us to even know what's going on in our own hearts. To repent of any sins that we may have and to come to your throne knowing that you are indeed faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins to you. There is a deep, deep, wonderful joy in knowing you, Lord, and knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so let us rejoice in that. Let us commit ourselves to him. I pray, Father, that you'll be with us now. Be with us throughout this series. Let us Remember the purpose of why we're doing all this so that we can glorify you of our lives and bring people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let them see that truth lived out in our singleness, in our marriages, in our relationship with one another. And so be with us now in our discussion groups. I pray, Lord, for a fruitful discussion. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray all this in your name. Amen.